Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shuga, with your hosts, Day Spring and Scott Free. Xavier is dead. Apocalypse reigns. This is the age of apocalypse. What's up, everyone? We're here today to talk about X-Men Red with one of our favorite humans ever. I think last time Michelle and I just spent the entire day calling you Zaddy, Zaddy Chad. Yeah, my my ego was inflated for hours afterwards. <laughs> well, I mean, your podcast, Gray Malcolm Lane, is one of the best X-Men podcasts out there. Thank you, you know so this. much. I'm ha- I mean, my measure of success is if I'm having fun and I'm having a blast. I love your podcast too. You have built such an incredible community. Uh, and I've, I've told you this a thousand times now, but your charisma, like you are wonderful. You're such a great host. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my God. No, thank you so much for being here. Scott and Michelle couldn't make it today. And of course, I immediately thought of you, the only person I want to discuss X-Men Red with, because there's so much rich history in this one issue that Al Ewing has packed in for us. I love writers that layer continuity and make me think and research. It makes me happy. And the art is by Stefano Caselli. I, I say Caselli because I'm Cuban and I think double L's, but it's Caselli. I've always pronounced it Caselli. I don't have any official uh, notes on that, <laughs> but okay. I've always said Stefano Caselli and, I, and, and their work is gorgeous. So gorgeous. So stunning. We're going to get to that last page, but Chad. Give us your thoughts. What's your initial reaction here? I, I mean, first and foremost, I love seeing Storm front and center. We've seen her a lot in, um, in the various X-Books, particularly Marauders lately, and a little bit in Sword. Uh, but to see her as kind of the focus or central player in the book with the cast woven around her, this is such a unique part of her chronology uh, uh, Ewing has such a great understanding of her very rich, complicated character uh, and her rich history. It was just lovely. Uh, her her portrayal in this book, I think, is phenomenal. Yeah, I I have to tell you, she took my breath away in this book. I thought the scene later on in the issue where she demolishes the throne. I think when she's fighting the shapeshifter, who was, I guess, the the sovereign of Araco. I'm still a little unclear with the Araco mutants, to be very honest with you. I still don't have a quite grasp on what their, their society is and sort of all the names of everyone. But I just thought the fact that it haunted her, even as she was sitting down in her own council meeting, and sort of that driving her in this issue was just so beautiful and wonderful characterization for Storm. I just, I really am glad that she is sovereign of our solar system. The Arako stuff is so complicated. I, I think, I mean, we have this idea of the great ring and it's been explained, but never really expounded on. We've seen it kind of put together in all the various X books, but it's almost like I would need to go through the whole Dawn of X era and like take detailed notes on who all these characters are and how the government works. We've got an idea of the Quiet Council on Krakoa, but the Great Ring, I mean, kind of the way that I see it is different characters, all of them Omega mutants, wield different types of power. 
and Storm is in a seat that is equal to the others, but she gets one extra vote, which means she gets to break all the ties, right? And she has to keep fighting for that position as these other mutants challenge her saying, you know, you don't belong here on Arako. You're not one of us. And we've seen her, what, five or six different times now have to take people down in this, whatever, what do they call it? The circle perilous, where she has to fight for her place and keep her seat. Uh, But in this issue, we see a vote where they are deciding whether they should go back to Amenth, which is what that demon dimension that Araka was trapped in for so long, and aid Genesis, the uh, wife of Apocalypse who ruled them for so long. Uh, but Storm wins. She gets to, to make the tie-breaking vote and is voting for peace, where they settle there on the planet. Uh, but there's a lot of political intrigue and a lot of very powerful people who are working their way through. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how Ewing weaves all of that in. He gets carte blanche, right? There's a uh, there's a million mutants that he could choose. He can give them any powers he wants. <laughs> All we know is that they are battle hardened and many of them are, are decades, if not centuries old. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex playing field. World building has been something about the Krakoan age that has been, for me at least, one of their greatest strengths and one of their weaker, <laughs> weaker qualities. Because, like, I agree with you. I'm not quite sure how a lot of politics and government is being managed on somewhere like Araco versus, you know, what we're seeing on Krokoa. Even on Krokoa, I think what's going on there is fucked up. You know what I mean? Like, there, there are some rules that are established, but we don't really see that coming into fruition. And it seems to be based on issue by issue. I get it. These are the early years of the Krokoan age still. So, you know, 10 years from now, we could be looking back at these stories in very different lights. But I am kind of confused with what Storm's position is on this on this council and how it's sort of this government is sort of formed. Like, and maybe you can explain this to me, like, why did she want to rule Araco? Was Has that ever been stated? Like she really took down this person before. And is that is that a, a new character to this issue? Is, what was her name? Like Omega? The, the shapeshifter. I'm saying. It just said, it just said nameless, the shapeshifter queen. Yeah. Nameless, the shapeshifter queen. I saw somewhere else there. Shapeshifter Omega, something like that. Is this the first time they've been mentioned before? I believe so. Yeah. I think that this character is probably going to matter more as we move forward, but I do not believe it's someone we've seen previously. Uh, To answer your question, why Storm did this? I think because she could. I think she's in this new new era of growth and she saw herself as available and up to the task and powerful enough to make it happen. Um, But it's complicated. Speaking as a, a, you know, I used to write on the handbooks. um, Of course. The Marvel Universe itself is so complicated and you just have to not get overwhelmed by it. You know, the uh, there's been eight universes before this and Galactus survived the last one. And there's the Eternals and the Celestials and the Inhumans and the Kree and Subterranea and Atlantis. I mean, all these hidden races. What, what has happened with this whole Araco thing is we now get to add to all of this mythos, the idea that, uh, what, a million years ago, there were however long, there were... I don't know how long Araka was separated from Krakoa. I can't remember, but there were millions of mutants already on the earth. So previously we understood that the X-Men were ushering in a new generation of increasing mutants, but it sounds like there have been uh, a million, a couple million mutants already. And now we're seeing in Marauders, which is a different conversation. They're going after even an older generation of mutants yeah. that the Shiara are potentially keeping. So it, it even adds more, this planet, 
in the Marvel universe just keeps spitting out fucking billions of <laughs> superpowered people. <laughs> That's great. And I do want to say that I I do love seeing Storm as Soul Regent. I do love the idea of Mars be it being terraformed and having this planet full of millions of mutants and their powers can be whatever. One thing I loved about this issue so much was the Red Lagoon and that Sunspot is owning it and it's just one step in his larger plan. And in this bar, we have quite a bit of trouble stirring up because we have Thunderbird and Vulcan fighting. And I just thought he, Al Ewing just nailed this scene. And I'm curious for your thoughts on it. But I love the perspective that, you know, Summer's, the Summer's name, the Summer's family is something of royalty on Krakoa. I thought that was a nice little touch that he threw there, or at least it's infamous enough or famous enough, excuse me, on Krakoa to merit that people actually recognize it. And Thunderbird being like, uh, I don't care. Tell Cyclops to go fuck himself. And like, like just bitch slaps Vulcan. I mean, to take it one step back, we see Sunspot sitting at the bar uh, next to this character, Kobak Neverheld, who appeared in Sword Volume 2, number nine. That's the guy that uh, that Storm defeated, who challenged her for the throne, like near the end of Sword. And Kobak is sitting next to Sunspot and reveals that he's gay. He had this old yeah. lover named Tarlo that he lost. And he's this little monster guy with grass grown out of his shoulders. And that was adorable. So um, adorable. To comment on the, on the Vulcan thing, um, I mean, Vulcan, th- this is the original Vulcan, right? So we've had this question about what happens if we clone or resurrect someone when the original person never died. This is what X Factor was supposed to present. So this appears to be the first Vulcan, the one who was believed dead during the, what was it, Realm of Kings storyline with Black Bolt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he ruled fucking space, man. Not only that, but he's got Deathbird and some sort of baby and an egg out there somewhere. (laughs) Uh, so this character's got a lot to do. This is angry, like, I will destroy you, Vulcan. Okay, wait. So, because I, I thought that was just a shift in the tone of the character, much like how we saw a shift in Polaris from when Hickman was writing her to how Leah Williams sort of took the character. The Vulcan we've been seeing in the Krakoan age so far has been having threesomes, just kind of like burning stakes, having a good time. This Vulcan is obviously a little bit more serious, a little bit more angry. I took that more as a shift in tone, not that this was a, the original Vulcan. I thought when he said, I never died, I thought that was their way of kind of solving that puzzle for us and that there aren't two Vulcans. I, are you, I read are you it, saying there are two? I read it differently. So I, it's, been a little, it's been a minute since I've read this, but during Hickman's X-Men run on the X-Men title before it was relaunched, they were kind of exploring the mystery of whether or not the original Vulcan survived. And I got this as that Vulcan because he's specifically saying, I never died. Gladiator took my throne. I'm that guy. So I guess it could be either thing. I don't know if we have enough clarification. This is either the sedate Krakoan Vulcan who's had a shift in personality, or this is the space Vulcan coming back to, uh, to wreak havoc. I, I don't know. I don't know where this is going, I guess. 
I, listen, I'm here for it. I like your theory or interpretation much more than mine because that was going to be one of my notes. I was like, oh, Vulcan is being written so vastly different right now than what we've seen. But I'm here for it if it's two of them. I just thought it wasn't because this Vulcan is aware of Krakoa. Presumably, mm-hmm. he has stepped foot on Krakoa. But also, like, yeah, even in Immortal X-Men last week, no, Immortal X-Men last week, we saw Vulcan at the council when they were auditioning new council members. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I ruled space. So obviously I'm overqualified for this. So maybe this is just that newer Vulcan with person. I guess we need to get some clarification. But there's, Ewing, come. There's, an, uh, there's an added deliciousness to that, though, that I actually just realized. Vulcan has a baby with Deathbird. And Sunspot has been dating Deathbird. So this bar fight between them, it's not stated, but like they've both been fucking the same alien bird lady. (laughs) Stop it. Uh, I love this intergalactic drama. I am here for it. I mean, Deathbird is pretty hot. So Sunspot has had a lot of love in the books in the last several years. Hickman loves Sunspot. He put him on his Avengers with Cannonball. Uh, he took over aim like we get to we're, we're seeing all this great stuff and uh thunderbirds portrayal here just reminding you what a fucking asshole this guy is uh was also really fun it was fun to see him mixed in um post-resurrection uh and everybody just calling him on his shit okay <laughs> but cable was not kind to thunderbird I, you're, you're taking the words right out of my mouth when he's here like go catch a plane i was like I would throw down if someone said that to me. But I also liked that we got some really big character development for Thunderbird because he's angry at Cable because he turned James into a warrior and he wasn't he wasn't okay with that. Yeah, it was, it's an interesting because this is his uncle, too. There's another layer there. So Vulcan is Cable's uncle, right? Yeah. I mean, and he even calls him uncle in it, which is absolutely hysterical. Look, the entire scene, I mean, Al Ewing got everyone perfectly in this. And I, I, I forgot about Sunspot and Deathbird. So, God, that's such a hot couple. I'm like, I'm here for that couple, like 100%. A weird change for Deathbird. She is the, she is the fancy old Hollywood lady dating the 20-year-old guy. <laughs> she is savage. She will rip you to shreds. You know, and we have Agent Brand there, obviously, causing trouble. We know she's a double agent. Yeah, and then these text pages that just kind of remind you about all these characters that are new that we don't know much about. Yeah. Bob Yunar and Aura Serrata. But there's all these different uh, mentions of them. Like uh, Ewing has their characters down. He's got plans for them. You can see that. Well, even with the character he introduced, the Fisher King here, which I absolutely love that. I love Arthurian legend. I I am a big Joan Didion fan, and she obviously wrote an essay called In the Realm of the Fisher King. So Fisher King being this person who keeps the Holy Grail is such a wonderful, delicious level of metaphor within this story. And a lot of like Fisher King deals with pain. And I think pain is something that's so obvious throughout this book. You have pain that Storm has, you have pain that Magneto has, you have pain that Thunderbird has. It's just everywhere there. And I'm curious what, where he's going with this, you know, and, and reestablishing the brotherhood at the end with Storm. I just, I was just blown away by this issue. 
I have done uh, a lot of research on Magneto in the last several months. I've read. Oh, have you? I wonder, oh, oh, have you? I wonder why. <laughs> we did a four-hour episode on Magneto on my yep. podcast that I'm really proud of, actually. Uh, but one of the things I'm actually more excited for Magneto in this book than I am even for Storm. Uh, one of the things that was really profound here, Magneto is just tired. He just wants to rest, but he calls himself Max in this issue. He, does. He, he uses his childhood name, which is a very clear, distinctive decision. On the podcast we, we reviewed in the, the trial of Max Eisenhart, part one, we talked about the shift in his name. He's Max to a certain point, and then he's Eric, and then he's Magnus, and then he's Magneto. Uh, and to see him use the name Max here shows just a weariness about him where he's just looking for a place of quiet, but he's of course going to get sucked back into all of this. He's so scary under the surface. He's got it all just brimming right underneath. Uh, and he and Storm are fascinating allies. Uh, I'm really excited to see what Ewing does with that relationship in particular. Well, okay, listen, he wants to be left alone because he's tired. And what does he do? He builds this beautiful castle for himself on Araco. And he thinks he's going to be on Araco and no one's going to bother him. I mean, he's seeking drama. He's so self-destructive there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is his first day. And I love his interaction with Fisher King because I think maybe in so many ways, Fisher King represents who Magneto would have been in a different world, a different road taken. You know, they have a lot in common that he, Fisher King, was in the slave pens he's had war his daughter sold out and and magneto saw a lot of himself in there and i understand that rapport and their playful banter and their conversation when he was here like you could use a couple throw pillows here and he's here like listen i'm the master of magnetism not the master of interior design or whatever the fuck he said <laughs> i just thought it was really funny and you kind of see like a different version of magneto there and i'm curious who fisher king will turn out to be or if he isn't going to turn out to be some kind of reveal what symbolic purpose he does servicing magneto's story yeah he's like this old hardened warrior who's farming on another planet now uh who seems to be embracing this new idea of, of Araco peace the really interesting thing in that relationship magneto on earth you don't have a normal relationship you respect him or you kowtow to him uh but this is someone who doesn't know him this is someone who they just looked over and said, hey, friend, let's talk, right? Uh, and I don't think Magneto is accustomed to that for many people. He's used to being seen as this icon or this crazy Hitler-like murderer, right? Like, there's no in-between. Yeah, uh, well, they're talking as though they are contemporaries. And I think with the, I mean, I don't even think Charles can fully understand what Magneto went through, but I think this is one of the only people that Magneto has met who understands everything that he has he, he's, he's gone through in his life. And I think we saw a little bit of that. One of my favorite Magneto stories was in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, where he comes to Wolverine. He's here like, I need you to do something. And it was taking out a Nazi soldier. And Wolverine was like, I can do this myself. But he was here like, please, Logan, do this. And yeah. in that his moment... Name is, his name is Er Hitzig. Ah, yes. <laughs> and you, you see his pain in his eyes and why he can't confront something like that. And it, it actually gives me goosebumps. And I'm not a very emotional person, but I do want to cry even thinking about it. Because Magneto's a deeply complex character. And I think... There were, you know, in the Krakoan age, we really haven't seen them hit those notes quite yet. And we got glimpses of it in Trout Magneto, of course, but 
I feel in this one issue, we've seen so much of Magneto flushed out in such a really meaningful way. I'm excited for it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm really excited to see Ewing work with this character. I think he's going to do a brilliant job. Magneto and Storm, neither of them are easy to write. No, I, uh, I've seen some interviews uh, with people about Storm. People are so afraid to have bad things happen to her. <laughs> you know, like there's there's a she's a tough character to write because she represents so much. But then it leads to people just not using her. She's only the powerhouse or someone who swoops in to save the day. Uh, it's really nice to see her in the spotlight. It's something I don't feel like we've had in a long time. Um, well, and I really want to like, I'm trying to think of how to express how well Storm was written in this. It's like she's seasoned, she's powerful, but she's also very introspective. And I love that she sort of destroyed the throne and was like, I'm a queen who's going to want more than a throne. I mean, I would never expect going into a story that Storm would just be sitting on a throne, you know, governing, like absolutely not. But I love the end when she walks in and she's here like, let's establish a brotherhood. I was like, oh shit, things got real. And Storm in her history, whenever she goes through a big dramatic change, right? Always has to do her hair. She cuts her hair. She goes through some sort of physical transformation. And she even references, uh, you know, her time in Tokyo or these different versions of her that have been in the past. I don't know that I quite, I'm going to need to read it a couple more times. I don't know that I quite understood her transformation in this issue or particularly what it represents. So there seems to be understandings from Sunspot in particular that Abigail Brand is up to something. Mm-hmm. And Brand comes to Storm and basically taunts her about being on the throne and then asks her, like, do you want to help me form an X-Men for this planet? And Storm right afterward destroys her throne, changes her costume, and then says, we need to counter Abigail Brand by forming a brotherhood. And in the room are Sunspot, the Fisher King, and Magneto. Uh, I don't know exactly what the repercussions of that are, or if I quite understand what the motivations are. Did you read that differently? No, we're absolutely on the same page. I mean, I kind of took Storm's transformation to be a byproduct of the internal guilt she was feeling about taking on Araco. Again, for me, like the problem I've had is why did she fight Nameless, the shapeshifter, and sort of dethrone them? That, that to me, just I'm not quite making that leap in logic there. The way I always kind of thought of it was Araco or Mars was uninhabitable and they terraformed it and storm being who she is has sovereignty over that i didn't know i mean it makes sense that she would have to wrangle power away from the iracos in order to establish herself as sovereign of this planet that they're living on that i am totally 100 you know conceived of but i just wish i would have seen the motivation there but it's obviously something that's haunting her I think everyone knows Abigail, even Sinister, knows Abigail's up to something. And they sort of want to beat her in this game of chess here. But yeah, I why do it under the radar? Why come in with a new outfit? I love her Hellfire Gala look. I think that Hellfire Gala outfit is immaculate. I wouldn't have touched it. I would have liked it around for a little bit longer. But I equally like this new, you know, punk queen brotherhood whatever look it's it's not it's not terrible for me but i'm on the same boat i I think your reading is perfect as as per usual you know that ewing must have proposed that they call this book the brotherhood or the brotherhood of mutants uh but they went with x-men red i think the pun for mars was just too tempting (laughs) (laughs) it was too tempting for them listen i i mean we got another x-men red reference in marauders today so as a big gene gray stand i'm pretty happy i 
You know, I love Sword. The first couple of issues of Sword I loved. It kind of went in a different direction that I wasn't wild about. Sword and Marauders both tried to do too much with too many characters. Rather than staying on a focused mission, they were always great and the art was yeah. always beautiful. Yeah. But they tried to tell too much story. Marauders ended up being about the Hellfire Club instead of the Marauders, right? Uh, and Sword ended up being about all this space drama instead of this focused team. Uh, they still delivered, but I, I definitely prefer a book like Hellions or X-Factor or What Immortal X-Men's going to be, where you take one cast and tell one story, as yeah. opposed to trying to connect to everything. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, we're on the same page. I, I, I'm cautiously very optimistic. I've been ranting for months that I'm like, I love the Krakoan Age. I love what it's doing for the X-Men, but the books haven't been really hitting with me in the weeklies I haven't really kept up with. I definitely think Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red are two titles that I'm going to be just looking at the pub schedule, dying for them to come out and reading them weekly again. So Immortal X-Men took me an hour and 40 minutes to read. Wow. I took my time. I've only read it the once, but it took me, I, I, I went slow and I read it clearly. And uh, I mean, anytime Gillen puts something out, I put myself into a particular space uh, Eternals always takes me a good 45 minutes to read. There's, there's a, there's a, uh, an intelligence about it. I got to stop and look up words and I got to, I got to piece things together and remember history. A lot of books aren't like that. Um, I love the emotion particular books bring out in me and some I'm ambivalent about, but Immortal X-Men is easily going to be my new favorite. Uh, that said, I love anything that Ewing or Duggan write. I think they're both really great uh, rides all the way through. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're fantastic. This is a fun new era. It's going to be really great to see where it all goes. Well, speaking of Yuring Jillian and uh, the Eternals, Death to the Mutants, a new title that was announced today. What are your thoughts on that? I actually want to hear yours first this time. <laughs> I'm, I, you know what? I'm here for the ride. I'm here for the ride. It seems that every time that there's a new team that's sort of surfacing that in the MCU that needs like an extra boost, they go up against the X-Men, Avengers versus X-Men, um, Inhumans versus X-Men. I'm, I, I'm okay with it. I trust him as a writer, obviously. I here, Here's one thing that I'm still having really trouble wrapping my head around. The idea of resurrection was implemented from an editorial standpoint to force writers to tell stories that don't involve the X-Men dying, right? And we had how many years? Possibly over a decade of an extinction story. I'm sort of done with the X-Men dying or death to the mutants, stuff like that. I'm curious why now we have to revisit the idea of resurrection being inhibited because we saw that in the preview pages for Judgment Day that Hope and the Five are killed. And and, and now we have this title called Death to the Mutants. I'm, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but you know I kind of want to see where they're going with it. So this is meant to be a three-issue miniseries that's part of the larger event. So it's mm-hmm. the it's the it's the Civil War event, but with a little side title, right? And whenever you have these side events, sometimes they're incredible, and sometimes they're just okay. But Gillen is writing this one. Mm-hmm. What really stood out to me in this solicit is we get the cover image, and it's called Death to the Mutants, but there's no mutants on the cover, right? I think we see like uh, uh, maybe that's Xavier in the back I that was yelling. Xavier. But we see we see the Avengers and the Eternals kind of going to war. Are you reading Eternals right now? I'm not. I am prepping to read it, though, because we are going to be covering Judgment Day on the podcast. So uh, Gillen has created, he's taken what Kirby and other 
other people have done before him, and he has created a whole complicated government and society. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is not dumbing it down at all. He's diving into their purposes. He's done one shots about their history, about things that happened 500,000 years ago and why they matter now. Um, he's layered it and it's really, really complicated. Uh, but he's putting them in a position where we're seeing key players. So two things about the Eternals that are really key to this story. They worship the Celestials, but they've been cut off from them. Ooh. And they are designed to wipe out the race called the Deviants. And the Deviants are these little creepy creatures that live underground, basically. Uh, and in this position, in this war space, the Avengers are literally living in the corpse of a Celestial and they are learning to see mutants as deviants. So the Eternals setting up this war with the Avengers and the X-Men on either side makes a lot of sense. Uh, but Thanos or Thanos is currently leading the Eternals. He's now their elected ruler. So spoilers for those that have not read the Eternals book yet. Spoilers. Uh, so we, we have a lot of really complex stuff. Uh, and then in Jason Aaron's Avengers, if you're reading that, we have a ton of mythos happening about like the Avengers of 1 million BC. We keep flashing back to a million years ago where we're seeing all these characters and the Eternals have been around this whole time. So there's there's going to be a lot of layered stuff showing up here. Um, and Gillen, Gillen is smart enough to make it happen. You told me, if you told me about an Eternals X-Men crossover under anyone but Gillen's hands, I'd be like, eh, okay. But since it's Gillen doing it, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. I'm really excited about it, actually. I mean, you have me so excited right now for it. And I agree. Anyone else, I would have been like, pass. But it's because it's him. And I loved his Young Avengers so much. I loved his Generation Hope. I loved his X-Men run when he did the Extinction Team. He knows how to take off and give a smooth ride. So I'm here for it. Here for it. Do you know the best thing he's written uh, is uh, Journey into Mystery? Oh, you're right. He did, did read, write Journey into Mystery. Did you write that? I believe I did, but it's been a minute, right? That with, came out a couple of years ago. It's oh, it's been several years now. But with yeah. Kid Loki, he's uh, Thor kills Loki and then resurrects him as a kid, and then Gillen writes this book about Kid Loki yeah. that is just heartbreaking and wonderful and surprising. Uh, it's one of my favorite things uh, from Marvel in the last twenty years. Easy. Chad, what do you have coming up on the podcast? Um, it's hard to remember. Okay. So uh, well, a lot of what I'm putting out, I recorded like three weeks ago and then I'm recording stuff for next month now. Uh, our next episode, which comes out tomorrow, I don't know when you're releasing this, but coming out on April 7th is uh, a review of X-Men 40 with the writer Rihanna Pratchett, who is the writer of the, the video game series uh, Tomb Raider. And she's the, the daughter of Terry Pratchett, the Discworld, the Discworld series guy. Uh, and it's wonderful. Uh, and then we've got novelist Neil Clyde on right after that. And then the Italian artist Elena Casagrande right after that. So uh, some stunning, really fun and funny episodes coming out with just standard issue reviews as we cover the nonsense of the X-Men in the 40s run. The, uh, the, Frank, the famous uh, alien Frankenstein and uh, a grotesque and the death of Professor X and all that crazy stuff from the 60s. How about you, Paul? What do you have coming up? So we have on the podcast, the ex-wife coming up. We have Leah Williams returning and we have the Lee Waltz returning as well. And then we officially dive into X-Men Alpha with Calvin from From the Ashes and Michelle Waffle Otero, who is joining us as a special guest host. And we're just so excited. And we may be announcing one more person who's going to be joining our little bat family here. 
Well, Chad, where can people hit you up? Uh, Gray Malkin Lane, you can find wherever podcasts are. Uh, I'm on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane or on Twitter under Gray Malkin P, P like podcast. Someone else had already taken the Gray Malkin Lane handle. On <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on at Power of X-Men. Mr. Scott Free is at Mr. Scott Free. And you can hit us up with any questions. And we'll see you guys next week. Well, thanks, Sugar. The age of apocalypse is now over, and we'll see you next time.